Hello, I am Gabriel Bronner, and this is Big Compute Podcast. Today's topic is new architectures for HPC on premise and in the cloud. For a few decades, CPU speed doubled every 18 months following Moore's law. HPC users could always count on the fact that a more powerful next generation CPU would enable them to scale their applications. More recently, we started hitting the limits of miniaturization and power, and the exponential compute power increase over time has plateaued. This has given rise to a variety of architectures, such as different CPUs from Intel, ARM, AMD, Xeon Fire, KNL, NVIDIA GPUs, FPGAs, and TPUs. HPC customers now wonder what is the next architecture they should buy. It also opens the question, if users can leverage different architectures for different applications, are they better served with a fixed on-premise system or with a cloud HPC environment that enables to access different architectures for different applications? To discuss new architectures for HPC, our guest today is Mike Udaker. Mike is a fellow at HPE. Over the years, uh, Mike has been a systems architect and chief engineer at MIPS, SGI, and HPE, where he set direction for hardware architectures. Welcome, Mike, to the Big Compute Podcast. Thanks, Gabriel. It's great to be here. Very good. Mike, uh, happy to have you. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, yeah. I uh, grew up in the UK and um, had always had an interest in technology growing up and uh, growing up in the 1980s, the rise of home computers and, um, you know, started programming on a Sinclair ZX81 and, um, you know, got excited about computing, studied computer systems engineering. And then um, my first job in the UK was with Inmos, working on the transputer microprocessor, which was you know a really fun place to be. Lots of great innovation work going on. And then you know after a few years there, I decided I wanted to broaden my horizons, combine exploring the wider world with my career. And so I relocated to Silicon Valley in the US and joined MIPS Computer Systems you know, working on the first 64-bit microprocessors and then, you know, through a series of takeovers and acquisitions, my sort of career has gone through into, in, into working for Silicon Graphics, then working with, with from Cray, working with Rackable and um, finally ending up at um, Hewlett Packard Enterprise today. And I did have some brief uh, sort of move into the startup space with uh, Three Leaf Systems in Silicon Valley as well. So Mike, we have a fantastic experience and you've been in with some of the major players in the industry. It's great to have you here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Um, first, perhaps you can give us your views uh, on the change that is happening from a mostly CPU world to a multi-architecture world? So I, I think it's actually a really exciting time in the industry. You know, when I started out in the 80s, there was a huge range of system architectures. You had RISC versus CISC, you know, digital signal processors. And then over the years, um, the kind of richness slimmed down as advances in IC technology, you know, how the highest volume general purpose approaches and, and in particular x86 CPUs kind of win out um, as, as the way to drive both hardware and software costs down. 
and the, you know the world gravitated to this um, x86 space and in the HVC um, area um, you know we we sort of gravitated towards you know clusters using x86 and InfiniBand being the dominant interconnect and while there were a few sort of proprietary interconnects you know generally more focused at the very high end of HVC the top of the top 500 um, you know the the physical uh, you, you know, the world has started to change again with the physical limits of, of the IC technology that led to that sort of dominance of, and consolidation onto x86. Um, with these changes, so the end of Denard scaling, the power density, um, you know, used to stay constant as transistors were shrinking. You know, that changed, so power's become this huge issue. And so even though we could fit more transistors on the chip, um, you know, there, there were real challenges on how you, you keep feeding those cores, you know, the, the memory bandwidth challenges and the fact that you can't really power all of that silicon on the chip all of the time. So we're now sort of into a, a, a heterogeneous area again where you, you start to have lots of specialist silicon starting to appear and, and sort of it's the combination of you know, the, the sort of um, exponential growth of data that we, we have to deal with in, in many different areas. And the fact that, um, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning has, has sort of been a way to start, you know, bridging, how to analyze all that data, you know, that's really led to people looking at, at application-specific use cases again, you know, where you have sufficient... Uh, business need to drive sufficient volume to invest in in those technologies to 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 give you that insight into you know from all the data that we're we're drowning in. But it is it's important also to keep things in perspective. You've got to pick the right tool for the job and make sure you're you have good operational efficiency, good resource utilization. So it's no good having you know this this cool technology if it's underutilized. So so you have to be making sure you understand you, what your needs are. And it's, it's sort of very different, um, you know, what some of the, the large cloud service providers need to solve their problems from what other people need at the departmental or corporate level. Sounds great, Mike. So you welcome the richness of the new style of architectures that we have today and the changes that we're facing because people will be able to use the right tool for the job, the way you say it. Let me, let me go to the Intel side first. And Intel has evolved and their CPUs have evolved from Ivy Bridge to Haswell Broadwell to Skylake. Would you like to comment on what have been the changes in, in the Intel processor line during these years? Sure. So um, I think in, in those, those recent number of years, we've seen changes. I, I guess probably the biggest one is the, the continued growing number of cores. You know, we, we know that the number of transistors has still been going up. So the way to sort of address the power issue is to go multi-core rather than one very high frequency core. So, you know, the challenge there is you add more cores is how do you feed them, providing sufficient memory bandwidth, um, you know, with memory technology so that the cores are not starved. And, and, and equally, you've got to provide sufficient interconnect um, bandwidth to um, 
basically allow you to to communicate whether it's to storage or to other nodes to for inter internode communication and so as well as you know memory bandwidth being driven we need to drive that io you know pci express being the majority of standard io channels today on 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 the x86 so um we've seen you know the growth of parallel data units you know ssc avx generations driving the flops per core you know from two to four eight up to you know with skylake we've got 32 flops 64-bit operations today per cycle which is obviously key for hpc um but this this advancement has you know there's been overall still an increase in the power envelope of the processor sockets which has pushed up costs both um you know in the platforms and operational costs so um you know this is uh you know, in general, Intel's done a, a great job at, at deploying performance at the socket level, but but it, it's a it's a growing challenge. That sounds good. So Intel has increased in terms of number of cores, in terms of memory bandwidth, in terms of connectivity. Um, we hear a lot about flops. Even the top five hundred list focuses a lot on flops in in running um, Limpack, but. Uh, give me a sense of memory bandwidth. Uh, how has memory bandwidth changed and how does memory bandwidth impact HPC applications? So when, when you analyze HPC applications, you know, pretty soon you, you, you find that in many cases, the memory bandwidth is a, a key limiting factor. The, the, the industry benchmark, the streams memory uh, bandwidth benchmark is really good at analyzing memory performance of, of processes and, and you know really that that streams benchmark can can kind of give you a, a good sense of where you'll you'll top out on on quite a few applications another way you know uh, spec fp rate would be another way of looking how um performance is limited and again spec fp rate you know there, there's a number of areas where the memory bandwidth is is really um, the key limit. And so, you know, for example, today, as you get looking at the Intel Skylake processor, you can get SKUs, all, you know, from I think four cores, probably the lowest, all the way up to 28 cores. Well, when you look at memory bandwidth, if you run streams, you'll top out at about a dozen cores. You'll, you'll, you'll saturate the, um, the memory bandwidth. So, you know, it's a real key decision point in, in um, you know, buying a technology to make sure that you've got sufficient bandwidth and obviously there, there are other ways you know other than standard ddr memory um, channels you can you can have things like uh, high bandwidth memory technologies that we've seen adopted by some of the gpus um, which can can drive even higher bandwidth but you you, you sort of have um, performance capacity trade-offs to make and and those can also be hard to configure that so they can add costs um, to the to the deployment so you know again it's, it's really important to look overall at, at what applications are key to your your use case and and pick the right um, bandwidth to fit that 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 need that sounds great Mike thanks for explaining memory bandwidth and how it impacts applications um, you touch on C on GPUs we've been talking mostly about CPUs and Intel 
as GPUs seem to achieve in success today in some areas, for example, AI, machine learning, deep learning. I wonder if you can talk to us about why is that and what are the kinds of applications that today benefit from GPU architectures? So, um, to me, GPUs, in a way, are the ultimate data parallel devices. You know, um, GPU is a graphic graphical processing unit, um, although people who come across them today may think of them as an AI unit. The graphics was the, the place they started where you, you needed to stream data through the chip in very much a single instruction, multiple data use case. And, um, but, and over time, uh, what, you know, what we see now is, you know, people are trying to extract information from data using artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning, and the deep learning algorithms at the core of them is a matrix multiplication. And so that, um, again, maps really well to the GPU architecture. So you can, you can use that, that parallel performance of many uh, multiplication units to perform um, training of uh, you know for these um, AI um, applications in, in reasonable time frames because you're you're able to process that training in in hours and not weeks so so this is really getting that data parallelism has let people really start to to make progress in in algorithmically exploring the the large data sets we're trying to gain insights from you know things like image analysis um you know that medical applications of image analysis are, are tremendous and and so the opportunity here for the the gpu and and uh, deep learning is, is uh is really great that sounds great. So basically, you could do AI deep learning with CPUs, but it'll take much, much longer. And, uh, and the advantage of GPUs, as you were mentioning, could be hours instead of weeks to do that. That's great to hear. Yeah. Actually, one other comment on that. I think, think um, you know, the other key thing that NVIDIA did first in HPC and now actually more in the AI space is also help the tool chain. So in the HPC with their CUDA work, that really made it easier for people, programmers and software to be developed. And now with AI and machine learning, the frameworks that have been developed in the industry, you know, CAFE, TensorFlow, again, that's really enabled the power of the GPU to be put in the hands of, of the many. And, and that's, that's really a key to drive technology adoption. That's great. Mike, I wanted to ask you about something that being close to your life. You've been involved with large memory systems at SGI and now uh, memory-driven computing at HPE. What can you tell us about those architectures and their benefits? So, so um, again, one of the, the key issues we face today is the, the amount of data we have is, continues to grow exponentially. As we talked earlier, challenges with traditional CPUs is that they're just not able to keep up at, um, at the, the rate of um, processing performance as, as the data grows. So, so another way, but people want to get real-time insights from data. So by getting data into memory, you can actually process at the speed of memory. And so you're, you're basically getting IO storage bottlenecks out of the way and you can process data orders of magnitude faster than if you're having to access that data through 
you know, a storage technology, even something like, you know, today's fastest storage is, you know, flash or, or even phase change memory based, um, you're still faster with DRAM. And so uh, getting that data set into memory lets you speed up the analysis work. And you can even, um, you can do all sorts of things. You can just take your current um, pipeline of, of, a, of, of a typical workflow, say an HVC, pre-processing, simulation, analysis, visualization, do it again. You can basically put all of those applications on, on a single system, keep the data in memory just through an in-memory file system so you don't even need to change the applications. You can get tremendous speed ups. And then you could, as well as just that simple way of using in-memory data, if you actually look at refactoring your algorithms now to think that you can process data in memory, that, that you can have larger pools of memory in here, I'm talking about tens of terabytes and, and growing amounts of data. So, for example, we've done some work around Monte Carlo simulation, which actually, uh, you know, a lot of banks use larger um, arrays of GPUs to do risk analysis. Um, the, the team in our labs worked to refactor Monte Carlo so that you would do pre-processing to, to basically create large lookup tables. So when you're actually doing the, the real-time risk analysis, you could transform a calculation. Instead of doing a base up calculation every time, you could do a simple lookup and then a small offset calculation. And we've seen speed ups you know, in order of a thousand X speed up in, in that sort of um, use case. So, so memory driven computing is really a way to enable, and well, it's another um, way you can address the, the challenges we have with large data. And then we're doing that today on proprietary memory semantic fabrics, but uh, in the industry, um, the Gen Z consortium has been formed to provide an industry open memory semantic fabric to drive uh, memory driven computing technologies, you know, and, and make it something that basically you can, you can plug heterogeneous processing elements into, you can pr plug all sorts of emerging memory technologies into, but by having that single address space, you can basically accelerate the ability of processing elements to get to these large data sets. So, so yeah, it's an exciting space. Yeah, so I summarize it. If everything is in memory, um, all my processing can happen directly without the bottlenecks of I.O. And I can even rethink my workflows to take advantage of everything being in memory. Is that fair? Exactly, yep. Yeah, that sounds very good. So um, we, we go into a phase. We describe a few architectures here. We describe CPUs from Intel, NVIDIA GPUs. Now we're talking about... Um, memory-driven computing, right? So I'm a user and I have to decide what machine to buy next. And what, um, what I always wonder is, uh, will users benefit from buying a system and choosing an architecture? Will they benefit from using different architectures in the cloud, assuming all these become available in the cloud and I have instant access and use them when they need them? Um, I see a possibility there. So I'd like to ask you, what do you think about the potential benefits the user will have in terms of having all these architectures available to them in the cloud? So I think, um, 
you know, cloud is, is um, you know, a really interesting space. And it's important to note that, you know, cloud is, is a very broad term. You've got um, public clouds, you've got private clouds, and, um, and the cloud model is, is um, something that's attracting a lot of interest from CIOs or management, um, you know, for business reasons that, that you know, I think a key um, business reason, I'll come on to some of the technology things, but first, the business reason is you can kind of change from a capital expenditure model to an operational expenditure model. And, and um, there are ways to, that that can be done too through, you know, um, you know, an on-premise uh, deployment as well as in the cloud. Um, but, I, you know, I think the business model is actually something people need to think about when they, they consider cloud technology. Um, I think, and again, operationally, um, security used to be a concern people would raise. I think that um, with the cloud, I, I think that's, that's pretty much in, in the background these days. And, but um, operationally, CIOs do worry about security of systems. So it's pretty nice for them to be able to go, you know, basically put that burden on someone else with, with, with a, a cloud solution. So um, I think the, the public cloud does, you know, provide really interesting entry points to explore options as we've been discussing all of these new um, heterogeneous processing technologies coming about you know it's it's very expensive if you if you want to explore them personally you know on site yourself so so being able to access them in the cloud is, is really interesting and you know the cloud is also great when you have uh, burst capacity needs so and and um, again if you can the, the other issue in in the hpc world um, for people coming into it, it's getting access to software. So if you can get access to an HPC so cloud environment where your software applications are provided for you, there's an easy way to get access to licensing for software. That can really help people sort of with the on-ramp to, to HPC. So, so the, there's um, you know, lots of benefits. But um, the, the other thing I would say is well, um, again, you, you have to step back and decide what's your overall workflow. It's great for exploring, but then you need to decide um, what, what's going to make economic and productivity sense for you. And because I think one of the other issues is the, the amounts of data that people are processing or dealing with. That can have a big impact on how you might think of using the cloud. Um, and so as an example... I was recently working with a startup that was doing molecular dynamic simulations using GPU nodes in the cloud. And they've been doing some great work, but they generated 40 terabytes of data and needed. And the key next phase was analyzing that data. And they just couldn't process that in a reasonable time with the infrastructure that they had access to. And so, so then it becomes, you know, bit of a painful process to extract 40 terabytes of data and you know both in time and in money so so i think it's important that people you know it's great to go explore technologies and and cloud can be very useful um if you if you have um you know time dependent needs for for computing resources so you um but if if you've got a sustained need for for 
um, doing whatever type of computing it is, then there's, there's a lot of sort of end-to-end workflow and cost calculations to take into account to, to decide what's going to work best for your needs. Your summary sounds like just like there's different architectures that you could take advantage of, uh, like GPUs, CPUs, etc. There may be different workflows that will benefit from running in the cloud. There'll be different workflows that will benefit from running on-premise, and you can always use the cloud to access things you don't have at home. Maybe that's uh, I'm, I'm I'm oversimplifying, but that yeah, I, I I think it's key. You know, it's it's easy to get excited around specific technologies, and and there's some great things going on. But when you you also have to step back and decide when you want to go into production with workflows or cases, you know, what's going to be the the best overall solution. So again, it's kind of the right tool for the for the job at hand and you know both the the cost of initial entry point and then the ongoing costs of, of that solution yeah great conversation mike i really appreciate uh, your answering the questions for for us uh anything you'd like to add before we close now it's a great pleasure to chat with you gabriel thank you very good uh so i'd like to thank our guest Mike Udaker, HBE Fellow, for sharing his experience and wisdom to help us understand this multi-architecture world that is evolving in front of us. Till next time, I am Gabriel Bronner, and this was the Big Compute Podcast.